Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing in our series, Raw or Real Authentic Worship, talking about Psalm 73, a God when life isn't fair. It's a phenomenal piece of literature in the scriptures. Beneath the Beacon writes in 2018, in the mid-1800s, working as a, a seaman or a sailor in Great Britain was a dangerous job. Shady ship owners tried to maximize profits by overloading their ships. These ships often sank in bad weather, allowing the ship owners to make an even greater profit because they overinsured the ships. In the year 1873 to 1874, around the coastline of the UK, 411 ships sank. All kinds of people died. Overloading, poor repair made some ships so dangerous they became known as coffin ships. Sailors refused to go aboard these coffin ships, and I'm sure this was before the days of unions. They were often imprisoned for desertion. If they wouldn't get on a ship that was so dangerous, they knew they'd probably die. So between 1870 and 1872 alone, over 1,600 sailors were thrown in prison for refusing to get on these dangerous vessels. It was a crime. In 1868, a young British politician, Samuel Plimsoll, applied his biblical faith to a current injustice. He announced that he would do everything in his power to put an end to the unseaworthy ships owned by the greedy and the unscrupulous. As a member of the House of Commons, he tried to have a law passed, but ship-owning politicians and their ship-owner cronies rejected the law. Then a massive storm wrecked 23 ships at once, leaving a lot of people dead. Onlookers were actually watching this. They're clustered on the pier in despair as vessel after vessel sank. With the public's new attention on the injustice of ship overloading, Plimsoll found, uh, fought to promote the cause. He displayed sailors grieving widows, that's a smart politician, in public, distributed 600,000 copies of a book exposing the vile practices of these owners. And finally, under his leadership, Parliament passed the 1875 Merchant Shipping Act, which marked the beginning of the end for coffin ships. From then on, and even to this day, if you look at the side of a ship, vessels had to display the Plimsoll mark, which is a load line painted clearly on their hull, showing how deep they could safely sit in the water and prevent overloading. The new practice saved thousands of lives of seamen who were caught in an unjust situation. The world isn't fair. Life isn't fair. That's what this psalm is going to be about. But it's a good thing that humanity has evolved in the last 150 years, right? Since the 1870s when all sorts of injustices took place. It's a good thing that we've really evolved into a world full of just societies, right? We continue to progress in our values and reflecting the values that matter to God, don't we? Not so fast. For most homeowners in a hot housing market, the value of their property tends to rise dramatically. Not for Carlette Duffy. Her home seemed not to rise in value much at all, and she couldn't find a reason for it until the answer was too obvious to ignore. 
So she wanted, this a woman, she wanted to borrow against the equity in her home and she got an appraisal for her house and she was surprised when her house was only worth $125,000 because it seemed like everyone around her, homes were worth a lot more. She got another appraisal, her home was worth $110,000, just a little bit more than what she'd paid four years before that. Obviously, this is not housing in Calgary. I know you're all thinking, wow, you're going to miss the illustrations. You're thinking $110,000 for a house. Nagged by her suspicion that the lowball offers were because she was African-American, she got a third appraisal, but this time one of her friends had a white husband, so she asked him to apply for the appraisal, and it came in at $250,000. That happens today. Here's another good example. In case you're thinking, is human slavery really that common today? I want you to compare human slavery today in a world that's supposed to be just and progressive to human slavery in 1860. Slaves today are cost about $90, by the way. If you were to buy a slave anywhere around the world, the average would be $90. And I want you to compare 1860 slavery to, this is about 10 years old, 2012, and I'm sure things haven't gotten better. Slavery in 1860, 25 million slaves worldwide. Slavery in the last decade, 27 million slaves worldwide. It's up from the 1860s. The median price per slave in 1860 was $134. The median price for a slave today, 2012 I should say, was $140. Slavery in 1860, 78% of slaves were legal. Countries allowed it. Today, 0% of slaves are legal, and we actually have more slaves in the world than we did in 1860, 160 years ago. The average lifetime of a slave is six years, after which they escape, set, are set free, or die. Came from someall.org. Shopping special slave labor. You can hear these stories all over the place. You Google it. In some, some places in the, uh, I believe it's Thailand, boat owners will talk young men into serving on their boats for six months, and then they're going to pay them, and at the end of six months, they just dump them overseas out in the ocean where they drown so they don't have to pay them. These are common practices. I've been in Cambodia and Vietnam where the value set in human life, especially the life of the children, is, is so cheap it makes you cringe. When you're on a plane going to Cambodia, you need to explain, if you look like me, that you're not there for sex trafficking purposes, that you're there to solve the problem. Genocide, war, sex trafficking, predatory lending, Bullying, squelching free speech in democratic societies, and on and on and on. We do not live in a just world. And this is one thing that atheists, agnostics, and Christians all agree on. Sometimes the world looks like a pretty poorly officiated athletic event. And we sort of look towards heaven and we're like, Throw the flag. Blow the whistle, God. Yellow card that bloke. Just threw that British in there for those of you who think I'll never say foyer correctly. <laughs> Remember the, in the sports world, I think it's on ESPN, there's a group of guys that do a, a come on man segment on a regular basis where they look at plays from the week in sports and it's like where somebody should have known better. And, and that's what we do with God. We look at the world around us, we're like, come on, man. 
You're God. See, as soon as any being claims to be God, we hold them accountable. On this subject, God is the lawgiver. He sets the standards. We accept that in his word. God is in control. It's his world. He promised to reward good and punish evil. In fact, if you go into an Old Testament context into which this psalm was written, if you're anywhere around Israel, they've got the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Exodus is the first giving of the law. When it's repeated in Deuteronomy, it's literally in a Hittite legal format from another culture around there. It's actually a, a treaty document between God and Israel where there are curses listed at the end if they disobey and blessings if they obey. It's very clear in their culture, God is supposed to reward obedience and he's supposed to condemn disobedience. Yet it looks like in Psalm 73, in Asaph's day, that those are empty promises from God or empty threats because it looks like God is not officiating the world that he's over. So why try to be good? Why care? Why try to be faithful to God if he never throws a flag on unfaithfulness? Well, that was actually the question, the reaction of not a skeptic, a worship pastor 3,000 years ago named Asaph. I want you to read it with me. Psalm 73 is on page 423 in the Bible in front of you, page 423. Right before Psalm 73, you'll see something interesting. It says book three. The reason it says that is there's actually 150 psalms, but there are five books, and this is the beginning of the third book of psalms. This is a wisdom psalm. It's actually a lament psalm, which means it's basically a literary complaint against God. Page 403, Psalm 73, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, their body is fat, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens, their tongues parades through the, the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. Waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And, there's knowledge, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in wealth. Well, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now, if I had said I will speak like this, and again, he's a worship pastor, if I had said I'll speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, how they're destroyed in a moment, they're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, 
I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you'll guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my, is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So there's a progression of thought here by Asaph as he's struggling with his faith. And he begins, I'm going to put this in the first person as he does, my faith was on shaky ground. My faith was on shaky ground. Now basically, Psalm 73, and there are a lot of different kinds of psalms. They're often arranged in different literary formats. Psalm 73 is actually a chiasm. I don't know if you know what that is, but there's a letter in the Greek language that looks like an X. It's called uh, chi or chi, and, and basically the progression goes from the left sort of A, B, C, D, C, B, A, and kind of comes back in the center of a chiasm is the main point. And that is actually the arrangement of Psalm 73. He begins with this doubt. My faith was on shaky ground. It's a wisdom complaint. It's a a lament. And I've entitled our series Raw because it it was raw. Psalmist spoke very honestly to God. And I know that sometimes when I say things very directly to God, like maybe five minutes ago, you're thinking, oh, that seems so irreverent. God is going to strike Pastor Paul. And a couple of you are actually praying in that direction. But that is the kind of honesty that you actually see in the Psalms. God can handle your disappointment with him. He actually can. And what we might consider irreverent was the way some of these Old Testament psalmists would talk to God in their moments of disappointment. It was incredibly raw, but it was honest about their disappointment with what they saw around them in light of who God was. Now Asaph was a significant faith leader. He authored 12 different psalms. It's possible there are two Asaphs. We're not sure. If, if there are, then he might not have offered 12 psalms. The two of them would have. He's referred to as a prophet and a poet. He's one of David's three primary musicians. He served under two kings, both David and Solomon. He headed up a special school of music. So he had his own sort of music college. He presided over some of the most significant moments in Old Testament history during the reigns of David and Solomon. This was an important dude in the religious sector of Israel. He's probably like one of the most important guys, and his faith is struggling because he's looking around him, and the world does not add up in light of who God has claimed to be. And he's just thinking, I can't get caught up week after week and lead and sing the same old psalms when I see what's going on in the world around me. He didn't believe what he was singing. He couldn't fake it anymore. And so he talks about this in this psalm. And he begins by affirming what he knew, what he knew should be true, but he wasn't really feeling it at least at the time he struggled with this crisis, and that is, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, he's, he's really questioning that in the psalm, but, but he's affirming it as he begins, sort of after he's gone through this. Surely God is good to Israel, but in particular, those who are pure in heart. In other words, God is good to those who do the right thing. Well, now he's gonna sort of unravel that thinking because it doesn't look that way, but he, he's reaffirming that. 
And then he tells us why he's been struggling. The prosperity of the wicked. So I just, I look around me at all these people who live evil lives, seem to be doing better than the people who are trying to be good. And not just, it's not just that they prosper, it's more than that they prospered, it's that being good doesn't seem to have the same benefit, and so he's actually finding himself jealous of his bad neighbors and feeling sorry for his good neighbors. Be one thing if everyone's having a great life. But he's saying, no, the bad people are doing better than the good people. And that's, that was a struggle. Didn't make sense in light of the covenant of God. Because the basic premise in the covenant is, covenant I mean the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, obedience will be rewarded by a good and just God. Disobedience will be punished by a good and just God. So my faith was on shaky ground. Why? Second, I saw a world lacking justice. Specifically, bad people seem to be doing very well. Now, I suspect that a lot of you are just way better than me in this area, but I think a lot of us struggle with the slowness of God's justice. I do. I do. But Old Testament Jews had better reason to struggle with that than you or I do because they had the specific promises from God in the covenant that I was just referring to. Exodus is the first giving of the law to Israel. It's where we find the Ten Commandments. We also find all kinds of promises about how God is going to reward obedience and he's going to punish disobedience. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the treaty format from the Hittite ancient culture is what Deuteronomy is basically patterned after. It's a treaty between God and Israel, and the format is actually just taken from other pagan cultures, actually. And at the end of that, like chapters 28, 29, right in that range, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are clear, there's like a chapter or so of blessings for obedience. In other words, if you obey me, I'm going to do this for you. You know, your crops are going to grow. You're not going to have droughts. Your, your herds are going to expand. You're, you're going to have lots of kids. And, you know, everything's going to turn up roses. You know, when you have flowers inside, they're never going to die. You know, everything you touch is going to turn to gold. Everything's going to be good. Blessings for obedience. Then there are curses for disobedience. Like if you don't obey me and you decide that Baal is a really good alternative God, I'm going to let you be taken captive by your enemies. You're going to have droughts. You're going to be deported. Bad things are going to happen to you. Promises for obedience, curses, or a withdrawal of those blessings for disobedience. Now here's the thing, and this is why this was so confusing for Old Testament saints, and this is why Asaph is pretty upset. You expected that those things would happen in your lifetime. They were national promises from God, like if you're good, I'm gonna do this for your nation, but for it to be true for the nation, it would have to be true for most of the people in that nation, right? I mean, if God's gonna bless the nation for obedience, most of the people who are obeying should be blessed by God. Most people should get the blessings if they're good. Most people who are bad should get the curses. It should work out that way, and based on how this is structured, it would typically be in their lifetime. We look at justice, many cases, as coming you know, in the next life. They would not have looked at it that way because of these promises. And Asaph is observing all of this. 
verses four and five, they don't seem to be burdened with the normal challenges of life. And you'll see this words a couple of times about, about you know, their, their eyes are sort of bulging because they're, they're fat and they're heavy and we don't look at you know, necessarily being heavy as always a good thing because we're, you know, we're all trying to lose weight in Western cultures. But the reality is, I just got my blood work from the doctor last week. She was not happy. The teacher did not like the homework. Anyway, so, you know, we're all trying to lose weight, but if you go to cultures where they don't eat a lot of meat or they're not very wealthy, you know what? You go to Cambodia and walk in a marketplace, you know what they'll do to a guy like me if I'm a little overweight? They'll touch your belly and rub it. They do because they consider it a, tiny, a sign of blessing. And, and so they talk about that, and it kind of comes through in this passage, mentions it a couple of times. You know, the, the wicked people, they're kind of heavy. They've got a lot extra. They're doing great. They demonstrate all manner of bad character traits. They live at the expense of others. They live as if nobody is watching. And it works for them, he said. Nothing seems to stop them. They ignore God's laws, and they keep getting ahead. They're getting away with it. God won't throw the flag. He's upset. He saw what we see. Crime really does pay. Especially white-collar crime. I mean, really. Worst-case scenario, a couple of years in a minimum security prison with three meals a day and cable TV. Worst-case scenario, you might get away with millions. Lots of evil is never caught or prosecuted. If you can afford a good lawyer, you're really in good shape. Doesn't matter what you do, a good lawyer will get you off just about anything. Oppressors around the world live in mansions while their victims have nothing or die at their hand. And for the people who are dying and suffering, for that 12-year-old girl sold into sex slavery, that's the only life she has. Asaph saw this. And he saw this in Israel's glory days on God's home turf during the the greatest era in Israel's history, during the reigns of David and Solomon. He's seeing this in Israel, in a theocracy where God is king. We see it in an imperfect world full of dictators, world rulers, and despots. We see it in third world countries where life is cheap. Asaph is observing this in the promised land. And God can't seem to get the flag out of his pocket. Like an NFL official, like looking for that when there's pass interference. Can't grab it. Can't find the yellow card. Can't see the strike zone. Can't call the foul. And Asaph's frustrated with God. Third, he said, maybe, just maybe, in light of what I'm seeing, doing the right thing isn't worth it. Now it's getting raw. Why be good? He said, I'm being good for nothing. My life feels like I'm the one under the curse. He actually says that. I love this. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. Didn't do me any good. Washed my hands in innocence. I'm not hurting my neighbor. Didn't do me any good. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He says, it's as if my unbelieving neighbor, who is more than unbelieving, he's a bad dude, he's hurting people and ripping people off, and he's living high on the hog, and it's as if I'm under God's curse. If God can't keep score correctly, 
Why play by his rules? That's what he's saying. Why be good? Why not, when you're young, cheat in school, get a better grade? Why stay pure? Why not exaggerate on my revenue or on my resume? Why not take credit for the work of others at work? Why not cheat on my taxes? Why be loyal to others when I could advance through disloyalty and undermining people at work? Obedience is overrated, is what he's saying. And the reality is, I mean, think about it. Not only does the kid who cheats get away with it often, the honest kid misses a scholarship because of it. Not only does the morally loose person sometimes end up with the perfect family, the faithful, pure single may never find the right one. I mean, why honor the Lord? Not only does the person who exaggerates on a resume get the job, the one who admits to little experience can't get hired. Not only does the manager who steals the work of others get promoted, the honest guy or gal gets downsized. Not only does the tax cheat save money, the honest guy gets audited. That's the world Asaph's looking at. Obedience is overrated. God doesn't seem to manage his world consistently with his character and, and in light of the promises that he's given us. And then he starts sort of getting his thinking oriented in a correct way. You're wondering if we're going to get there, aren't you? Say, man, Pastor Paul seems awfully mad today. And he even got his wife back. He should be happier. Number four, then I realized that to understand God's justice, you have to take the long look. You have to take the long look. This was a broken down pastor who needed a little reminder that life is more than just today. That God is going to act. Eventually, he will. Verse 16. You know, he said when I, verse 15, I, if I had said I will speak this way, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's like, I couldn't go to the temple and, and kind of say all this, what was going on in my heart. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I, I just couldn't get this right. He said, until I went to church, I came into the sanctuary of God, I went to the temple, and I really thought this through, and I perceived their end. What happens to people who live that way. He said, surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you're gonna despise their form. He said, I had to take the long look. He said, I went to the temple thinking, maybe I'm praying, the Spirit of God touched my heart and I realized the way things are gonna end. It's going to be made right. It's going to be sudden. It's like God's going to wake up and he's going to deal with them. Now, there's not a discussion here, which is interesting, about whether it's going to happen in this life or the next. He's just saying it's certain. It's going to happen. And then he reaffirms kind of his commitment to God. And he kind of reassures God and us. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with this God. Verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. He said, I was like a beast before you. I was kind of thinking like a dumb animal, God. Sorry about that. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. Afterwards, receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. He's like, God, you're all I want. I'm frustrated. I see the world around me, but you're all I really want. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of, my, uh, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Kind of got his heart back in the right place. Still living with the injustice, but he says, God, I see the future. I understand how it's gonna be. A couple applications here. First, Asaph is not alone. The inconsistency of God's, I'm gonna say God's short-term justice Not God's justice, but God's short-term justice challenges us all. This isn't new. And if this isn't a challenge for you, I would say you're probably the exception. I'll tell you this is a huge challenge for people who are choosing not to be Christians today. This is one of the primary reasons. In the late 1940s, Charles Templeton was a close friend who's a preaching associate of none other than Billy Graham. He effectively preached the gospel to large crowds in major arenas. However, intellectual doubts began to nag at him. He questioned the truth of scripture, core Christian beliefs. He finally abandoned his faith and made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade Billy Graham to do the same thing. He's a good friend of Billy's. He's like, Billy, you gotta walk away from this. It's not true. He felt sorry for Billy Graham. He commented, he committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. Not a very nice thing to say about Billy Graham. Templeton resigned from the ministry, became a novelist and news commentator. He also wrote a critique of the Christian faith, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Lee Strobel interviewed him for his book, The Case for Faith. Templeton was 83. He was suffering from Alzheimer's. He revealed some of the reasons he left Christianity. I started considering the plagues that swept across parts of the planet indiscriminately kill, more often than not, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten, just became crystal clear to me that it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe there's a deity who loves. Sounds a little bit like Asaph. Lee Strobel then asked him about Jesus, and he was actually surprised at the response. Templeton believed Jesus lived, but he didn't consider him to be God. He said this, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. The most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He's the most important human being who's ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. His eyes filled with tears, and he wept, and he wouldn't continue the interview. It is hard to watch the world around us sometimes. And for some people, they can't maintain faith. Second, delayed justice is still justice. 
Asaph was struggling because justice was being delayed. Nobody gets immediate justice, so it's extremely rare. I mean, think about today in the world. Somebody commits a crime. Well, what happens? They get away with it for a while. Eventually, you know, evidence mounts, maybe some DNA evidence. There's an arrest. Well, and then there's a trial, and then eventually there's justice. I mean, very rarely in life does somebody do something bad, and then your prayer is answered, the lightning hits them, you know? It really doesn't happen even where there is justice often. Justice takes time. But for many of us, God's justice takes too much time. We want immediate justice here and now for other people. I don't want it for me. I mean, do you? Uh, You don't know me that well, but I've done enough things in my life. If God had sort of given immediate justice, I might not be here. The lightning might have struck me. We want immediate justice for everyone else. We really don't want justice for ourselves. We want grace. For me, I want a tardy God. I want maybe justice someday, or I'm looking at Jesus having solved that in the cross. I want no justice. I want a forgetful God. Third, the world we really want is actually heaven. This is really what we long for. When you, when you look at what the Bible talks about when it talks about like the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus comes back and he rules the world and he's a righteous king. That's what we want. We want a removal of the curse on this earth and on us. We want a removal of Satan and his activity. We want a removal of our own sin natures and our proclivity to do what's wrong. That's what we want. That's heaven. If, if the world right now isn't frustrating to you, then you're in heaven. Because that is what we want. We long for it. Because we're made in God's image. We have a sense of this. Perhaps God, fourth, perhaps God is asking the same question as we are. We're asking, where are you? You know what he's asking? Where are you? We're saying, show up. He's saying, show up. In his book, When a Nation Forgets God, Erwin Lutzer retells a story a Christian story of living in Germany under Hitler. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track behind our, ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance, and when the wheels you know, coming over the tracks, we heard that. We became disturbed, and we heard the cries coming from the trains as it passed by, and we realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in these cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we'd hear the cries of the Jews going to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Wow. Wow. What did we do about the Holocaust, the church in Germany? We sang louder so we could put it out of our minds. Boy, I would hope that you and I would have been in prison over that. I would hope that you and I would have opened up our mouths and written some stuff and put it out on Snapchat and Twitter and I would have learned how to do that. I'd hope we'd have been arrested I'd hope we'd had the courage to stand up against it. But I say that, and God is asking us today, where are we when we see suffering? 
We're expecting him to fix it? Tony Hall says there's over 2,500 verses in the Bible that deal with issues of one example, helping the poor, the sick, the hungry. God set it up that we're to address this issue. We are, and he works through us. We're plan A. We're the solution to the world's problems. His plan B, we don't know what plan B is. Plan A is the way he set it up. So we're sitting around saying, God, where are you? And God's saying, where are you? Where are you? Haven't I, haven't I told you to deal with this stuff? And finally, God suffered to break the cycle of sin and its effects. So I'm a little tough on God. And I get that. Some of you fear the lightning is going to strike. It might. Because I resonate with this psalm a lot. But when we want to make God seem calloused, we have to go back to the cross. And John Stott talks about that. He said, we have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary and from that vantage point survey all of life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes we picture God sort of lounging, dozing off in some celestial deck chair while hundreds of millions of people starve to death. And he said, it is this terrible character of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. See, Jesus was all about suffering from injustice. He was not uninvolved. God saw the brokenness of this world, which we created, by the way, and he recognized there was no solution to it unless he came himself in the person of Jesus and died unjustly and rose again to overturn the power of these things in our world and ultimately to fix it. God suffered to break its cycle. Now we can all be frustrated with maybe the pace of God's activity around us. I get it. I get it. I get it. But God is a just God. Delayed justice is still justice. What you and I really want is heaven. We're here to be a solution to injustice. And Jesus died to break the cycle of it. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the honesty of Asaph as he struggled with the world around him as we struggle with the world around us. And he came to the right conclusion that your character is sound, that we may be frustrated with our experience in life at times, and particularly when we see others experience great difficulty, particularly when we see it at the hands of other human beings who should love and care for their neighbor but don't. He struggled with that. He struggled with the slowness with which you seem to act at times. But then he assured himself, and you assured him, this life is just a moment in the realm of eternity, and you are just. You will be fair. Everything will be made right. Now, that may not be good enough for us at, us at times, but it's, it's true nonetheless. Help us to, like Asaph, get our, get our heads around that. Correct our hearts when we question you to that degree and help us to stay faithful to you, as he did in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, 
go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.